Hello, agents of change, vanguards, and stakeholders. Welcome to this week's Right-Minded Show. I'm Brooke Warner. And many of you know that Grant and I are broadcasting from Berkeley, California. So like the rest of California, we've had a pretty gloomy and very wet entrance into 2023. And Grant, this weather has been a little scary at times because it's been so severe. But I've also talked to a lot of bookish folks who've loved the cozy part of the storminess, which is about being tucked in at home and reading and writing. And some of my colleagues and students who have flights canceled over the holidays were even a little bit relieved, they said, and took the opportunity to write. So I know that while we're craving some brighter skies, it is a reminder that we can find opportunity and inspiration in all kinds of situations. Uh, And Grant, you know, we're lucky because we've got this entire weekly show that's built around inspiration. Thank God. I honestly (laughs) don't know what I would do without these weekly doses. Yeah, I'll never turn down a dose of inspiration, Brooke. And, you know, some some gentle, cozy reading, inspirationally inclined rain. Got lost (laughs) in that sentence. Good job with all those adjectives. Uh, You know, well, we practice what we preach. And as such, we're on point this week because we're bringing a very inspiring guest to talk about a really important topic, which itself has inspired a sea change in book publishing, and that is inclusion. And Grant, you know, I feel like the DEI conversation has gotten a little diluted only because there's been so much of it. But then I'm always surprised because I'll say DEI like it's so commonplace and some people don't know what it is. (laughs) So I think it really depends on whether you're in an industry that's been impacted or not, you know, and, and in book publishing, DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion has been on every single radar, right? Like really precipitated by George Floyd's murder in the early summer of 2020. Um, And, you know, what that moment was for book publishing and many other industries was a major reckoning. And I would say like another reckoning, right? Mm Because it's like the industry has just had like reckoning after reckoning, but it doesn't really change. And this time it did. You know, this time the cool part was that there was what feels like some meaningful and lasting change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, And honestly, this whole conversation around inclusion is one of my favorite hard topics to talk about. Um, So we're just going to dive in. So Grant, I thought it would be good to define DEI um, in the context of books and book publishing for listeners who, you know, don't think about it as much as we do. Yeah, it's interesting that you say, you know, we've had multiple reckonings, ongoing series of reckonings, really. And and I, I think you're right. You know, it's, you know, the first thing I think about is just how late this most recent reckoning is for publishing, because you'd think publishing would have led the change years and years ago, simply because of the nature of publishing books that, you know, hopefully make us think more expansively and more inclusively. Um, but books by writers of color were rarely published, actually, until recently. And we, we've still got a long ways to go if you look at the statistics. So to answer your question, though, you know, diversity would mean that we are diversifying publishing lists, that we are seeing a broadness of experience, both in terms of who the authors are, but also who the stories are about and who importantly gets to tell those stories. So diversity in that way extends into representation. Who are the authors we are seeing telling the stories that get attention and that get to be told. And then equity is about the balance of those stories. Is it equal? Is the number of books being published by writers of color, queer authors, disabled authors, et cetera, proportionate to the populace? Are we privileging certain stories over others and why? What would it look like in book publishing to have true equity? Um, You know, it would look like more opportunity for those writers who 
who get pushed to the margins for reasons having to do with publishing believing and I, I would say manifesting that they can't sell those stories. That's always been something publishing has told itself. And finally, inclusion, which is the subject matter today. It's about you know, making space for everyone. So book publishing has not historically done this. It's been exclusionary and it largely still is. If you look at those stats I mentioned, it's built its reputation on being exclusionary, in fact, and cultivating a rarefied and elitist image of itself. And that image has really been called into question in recent years, as you said, and, and great efforts have been underway to interrogate that narrative and that legacy in ways that are, that are fortunately bringing about at least some early profound results. Yeah, thanks for that rundown. And uh, today's guest, Rebecca, who we're going to call Bex, because <laughs> that's her nickname, uh, Baruki, she has a great story about inclusion, and um, it's foundational to the story of her press, Row House. And so I'm going to save that uh, story for her to tell. But what's powerful about her founding story is that she articulated something she was seeing that didn't feel right. Uh, and then she got an answer for those that she was challenging and that didn't feel right, you know, so then she chose to act. And I do admire her. My gosh, I mean, she is a person who's living her values and the results have been astounding because she has just catapulted into success with her publishing endeavor, which is exciting and fresh and also really important. Uh, it's centered on the tenets of DEI. And so we need to keep having these conversations and to continue to see publishers who are exemplifying new ways of doing business like Bex's, um, you know, and publishing stories that are not the historical legacy kind, which, you know, it's like these books that are the canon, right? Um, written by primarily white men. And then we've been conditioned to think that those are the best or the most important. And so what we're talking about today is just, you know, this idea of inclusion, right? Like bringing everyone to the table and making room for everyone, but importantly, in this context, publishing more voices. And that means, you know, by historically marginalized peoples. Yeah. And on that notebook, you know, I know you've sat on a number of panels over the years on this topic and on diversity in particular, and, and you've you know, been on those panels since well before 2020 as well. So the subject matter has been a topic of interest, but what I'm curious what you see is uh, different between then and now. Um, you know, wh when do you think your first diversity publishing panel even was? Yeah, I remember it really well <laughs> because I wrote a, um, a blog post about it after it happened. It was 2016, auspicious year. Uh, and honestly, while a lot of people talk about the social justice movement that followed in the wake of George Floyd's death, obviously an important catalyst for this conversation, so was the election of Trump. Uh, and, you know, people were losing their minds, as we all remember. And that year I was invited by our good friend, Aya de Leon, who holds the uh, distinction of being the only person who we've interviewed twice on this show, uh, to be part of her diversity publishing panel. And I thought the reason she was asking me to be part of it and the reason I said yes was because I am gay. Um, and that was why, I, you know, again, like I had been talking about these issues and um, I had also been in a, I would guess I would call it like a row back in 2007 when I was part of an incident at Seal Press that had resulted in some DEI training. And Aya and I had talked about all of that stuff. And so fast forward to 2016, she's inviting me to be on this panel. Um, and it was, it was kind of funny because it was a all person of color panel, which I discovered once I sat down and she introduced us. And it was not the funnest moment of my life because I had to like out myself both as gay and also as not 
Hapa, which is like she clearly thought I was half Asian because that happens all the time. Mm. <laughs> and so it was it was a very awkward but later very funny story where I was the only white person on that panel. Uh, but it was a good experience, you know, and I have found that over the course of doing these kinds of panels that I've become increasingly more comfortable with an uncomfortable conversation. And most recently in Santa Fe in, in December, I was part of a diversity panel. And people, you know, they're they're uncomfortable with the conversation, but they want to have the conversation, right? They're engaged. And I think that's why it's such an important topic to continue to talk about. I, I That just kind of goes back to saying, like, I, I feel like I've had these conversations over and over and over since that panel with Aya and even before then in the context of that situation that I had at Seal Press. Um, and it is, you know, it's it's made my horizons much more open and, and I see much more clearly. You know, I think a lot of the stuff uh, that Bex is going to talk about today, you know, I was just sort of blinded in my role as a book publisher prior to these experiences. And, and now I see the world much more differently. That's such an interesting story, and it's kind of funny and cringy at the same time about the <laughs> panel way back in 2016. And I know from conversations we've had that the more you've spoken on this topic, naturally, the more confident um, you've gotten. And I, I definitely see that in myself, too. You know, I think I think we're, we've been trained to sidestep these conversations in a number of ways because they're fraught. And I actually remember a moment when I became uh, intensely aware of just how white publishing was. It was it was the Book Expo America conference, which used to be the biggest book and publishing conference in America. And I think this was 2013. And I was super excited to go because it was my first time going. Um, and that was the year that we need diverse voices. Uh, the hashtag, not the organization yet, but the hashtag literally erupted. And it erupted because the authors and speakers featured at the conference were, were literally almost entirely white. And it was a moment of reckoning for me, too. I didn't have anything to do with the conference planning, of course. But when I had glanced through the program, I didn't have that realization as keenly as I should have. Mm -hmm. And I recently read a stat that something like 95% of the books published between 1915 and I think it was 2018 were written by white people, you know, so systemic racism runs, runs really deep and it has run really deep. I don't know what those stats are now, but when I read that stat, I just, well, I could believe it actually, I was going to say I couldn't believe it, but I can believe it. So it's been eye opening and life changing to be able to, to have conversations about these, these important topics um, that have such profound impacts. And, and when we're talking about book publishing, there's just, there's just so much at stake, you know, because what we read informs everything, how we see the world and how we interact with it and what we see as valuable and important and what we know. So I feel very lucky to be in these uh, spaces where these conversations are, are not only being had, but they're prioritized and happy that they're being prioritized in publishing circles as well and writing circles. Yeah, me too. Because this is the life work right here, right? You you can't take in enough of this stuff because it's very paradigm shifting. It's worldview shifting. You know, like when I'm thinking about when I was sitting on that panel with Aya, like what I thought and knew then compared to what I thought and know now, you know, like however many seven years later this is, it's, it's different. And I had some awareness then, right? And then it also depends on where you come from and what you grew up with. Um, you know, I grew up with a gay dad and I was also really ashamed of that for a long time. And and that was because I didn't know anyone else who had a gay dad and no gay dads were represented in books or pop culture. But of course that shifted, right? And so I can speak to how 
in a single generation, there, there's such a huge shift. And, and so I really understand that intimately when people talk about, you know, no people of color in fiction or in stories or whatever, because I had that sort of parallel experience with my dad and I felt very outside and, you know, from the sidelines, just kind of feeling I was different, right? So this movement of writers and authors, you know, that's taking what's theirs, and it's something that they've been denied for a really, really long time. Um, And all I can say is that as readers and publishers, we also are propelling it, right? I mean, we're honoring it by buying those books, by reading those books, and also by saying, like, this is a new cultural paradigm shift, and it's an important one, um, and just not letting up on it. So, I guess I want to say, you know, what starts as concerted effort to change becomes habit, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, this is definitely not a change that happens overnight. There's a lot of work to do. And I know that we're going to be inspired by a conversation with Bex to do a lot of that work. We'll be back right after this transition to talk with her. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everyone. We have Rebecca Baruki on the show today. She is a mother to five, self-help and children's author, and the founder and president of Row House, Wheat Penny Press, which is Row House's children's imprint, and the WPP Little Readers Big Change Initiative. Since 2009, Rebecca has run an online wellness advocacy space through her Bex Life platform. She has also served on the Yoga Alliance Equity Task Force and as a mentor for Hay House's Diverse Wisdom Initiative. Rebecca is driven by a commitment to make wellness tools available to all, and she's joining us from New Jersey. Hi, Bex. Welcome. Hello. That's my old bio. I'm also a grandmother to one now. Holy, that is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited to say that. I'm putting in everything. My daughter's like, oh my gosh, mom. It's like nobody, <laughs> nobody puts grandmother in their bio. I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. It's the coolest thing. And you are so young. So it's not going to be, you know, you're, you're going to be like my age basically and be a great grandmother. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, I want all the babies. So yeah. oh, that's exciting. Congratulations. So, well, before you came on, Grant and I were talking um, and alluding to what I thought could be characterized as um, your founding story, or at least one Mm -hmm. of them, when you Mm -hmm. stood up to a room of folks at Hay House and asked, uh, where were the writers of color? So I wondered if you could anchor us by sharing that story and how that moment was a catalyst for the work you're doing now. I just want to say that I don't have any money. So no one please come and sue me for this. I think the Hay House, it'd be a bad look if they did. But like, I've told this story so many <laughs> times. I'm like, can I say this? So yeah, it was um, May 2018. I believe I was at the Hay House. It was like a writer's mastermind retreat. I hate that word mastermind, by the way. It's like, I hope, <laughs> I hope that goes out with like the t- early 2020s or whatever. But, um, so we're at this weekend retreat thing where we were learning about marketing our books and it was kind of like 40 authors up and coming and the top authors in the room, a lot of marketing people, a lot of staff at the Hay House. 
And I didn't, I wasn't quite sure why I was so uncomfortable that first day because Hay House had been my home for a long time and I was there definitely with friends. And I went home that night and I just cried and cried and just felt like I don't belong here. This isn't the place for me. I went back the next day and I started looking around. I'm like, oh, I am the brownest person in this room. Now, Vani Hari, who was an author, she was there too. And I don't want to like say she wasn't, but she was somewhere nursing her brand new baby. So I'm sitting there in this room with, it was a very, very, very white room. And myself being biracial, somewhat, you know, ambiguous when it comes to ethnicity and race, like I'm not that brown. So at the end, at the very end, and I have to give credit to Kyle Gray, who is, he's like an, an angel card person at Hay House. He's, he's a lovely Scottish gentleman. I, I adore him. But he stood up and he's like, are we going to talk about the elephant in the room about like all this um, conversation we've been having about race and, and what's going on in spiritual wellness and whatever? Um, I'm paraphrasing poorly. And then he invited me to stand up after a bunch of other, you know, white folks stood up and, and gave their piece. Um, and I said, so Reed, who was the CEO, Reed Tracy, I said, you know, what am I supposed to say to my people when I go back? Like, I am the brownest person in this room. My community does not feel welcome here. And he said, well, you have to understand, Rebecca, that we cater to an affluent audience. Hmm. And it was like my poverty life <laughs> flashed before my eyes, like, okay, well, that's not me. Um, high school dropout, grew up in abject poverty, teen mom, like all of that. I'm like, okay, that's not me. And it was just demoralizing. It's like, I don't know if he knows what he was saying. I mean, he knew what he was saying, but like, I don't think he understood the impact and, and all the implications of like what he said meant to so many people. Mm -hmm. But that started a long journey. You know, I helped them develop the Diverse Wisdom Initiative, the U.S. version, I served as one of the only people of color in the whole initiative, but certainly the only mentor. It wasn't great for the mentors. It wasn't great for the mentees. And then finally in, it was October of 2020. And, you know, we all know what happened in 2020. George Floyd, Black Lives Matter movements, the uprisings, all the cities, COVID. I found out that five of the 12 members of the disinformation dozen, this group of 12 online leaders, influencers who were responsible for most of the disinformation around COVID, I found out that five of them were Hay House authors. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can that be right? So I did a little bit more research. I Googled a little bit more, um, but then went directly to the leadership and said like, hey, what are we going to do about this? Like Hay House needs to say something. Like COVID is a, a racial issue too. Um, it's disproportionately impacting black and brown people, which is my community. And, you know, we had a talk that the, the under leadership, I'll say upper, upper, upper management right under the CEO was very receptive. And they basically told me there was nothing they could do. So it was on that phone call that I left Hay House. I pulled my contract for my children's book that was coming out. And um, I mean, that's how I left. And then <laughs> a couple people left in solidarity two of their very popular authors. Um, and uh, a friend of mine reached out and said, hey, why don't you just start your own Hay House? That's kind of <laughs> like a joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's never like such an easy proposition. Uh, and you're like, but it is for me. People, I mean, people who know me know that it's like, okay, well, next thing is within two weeks, we had the name Row House. We had like the website going, amazing. the social media. <laughs> amazing. No money though. No money though. 
So. Wow, Bex, I was just riveted by that story in that in that way that um, it perfectly embodied like show don't tell principles, you know, of, <laughs> of, 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 of storytelling, and it just placed me uh, so so you know right right in the systemic racism and how that works in 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 publishing. And I know that you've shared in a few places about how you've not been taken totally seriously. You know that you've been called too street or your language has been called too casual. <laughs> yeah, it's going to come out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering if you could, you know, explain how criticisms like these are often leveled against writers and aspiring authors and, and how they're coded or meant to undermine. And your CEO's comments uh, fit, fits in that category as well. It's so interesting because while we're recording this, it's right before Dr. Martin Luther King Day. And there's so much now, like thanks to social media, thanks to the internet, we know so much more about Dr. Martin Luther King and how he wasn't, like he was reviled in his time and his quotes have been taken so out of context and used against activists and black folks to say, you know, like you need to calm down, you need to come with peace, right? So it's, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, his story and the stories that radicalized most of us, right? The the things certainly that changed my life, that saved my life. All these stories came from the hood or they came from my people or they came from the outsiders. So for publishing not to let these voices in and say it's too street or it's not, you know, mainstream enough or it, especially in spiritual wellness, like it's not love and light enough is ridiculous because all the principles that these folks are working off of came from these very radical, radical people that were unloved, right? Who were pushed out. So when they say it to me, it hurts, but I also have that understanding that um, I'm here because of those radical voices. I'm here because of those people that might not have had the, you know, the highest education, the most money, the most respect from those in power. So, I mean, it bothers me, but it doesn't. It actually, it empowers me to show them not in any kind of vengeful sort of way, but it's just like, all right, just watch me then. I'm not, I'm not trying to fight with people that say I can't. I'm just like, all right, well, I'll just go back and do what I do and and we'll see what happens. Well, and clearly it's working. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also a publisher. And when I saw you on stage in San Francisco recently, I was like, this woman is doing such cool things. And so I just want to ask you a few things about book publishing. Um, mm -hmm. Like, for instance, you do a 40-40 contract, meaning that you're giving authors 40 grand for an advance and 40% royalty. Mm -hmm. So I'd love you have uh, just for you to talk to our listeners a little bit about what inspired that model. Um, and then I'd love to hear you talk to about your accountability because you've said you welcome it, even public forms of it. And that's not easy. Yeah. I mean, that's, you've said it's radical transparency and it is in an industry that is notoriously not transparent. All right. Well, I'm going to start with the end um, part because it isn't, you say it's not easy, but it, it comes easily for me. And I think it comes easily for a lot of people who are um, in a position where they have no choice but to be activists, whether you know willing or unwilling, when everything that you are, when your skin color, when your gender, when whatever sort of identity you hold is political, you have and you can't not live your truth, right? Like I can't not look how I look, or I guess I could not talk how I talk, but it comes out anyway when I get comfortable. The criticism just comes and you have to live through it. You have to do it. So I welcome it because I know that it's made me better. Um, I'm not in this life to be ignorant. I'm not in this life for just me. So whatever makes me better, I welcome with open arms. And it, and it isn't hard. 
I explain a lot of things through the context of childbirth just because I've done it so many times. <laughs> but the thing is like the baby's coming, right? The other side is coming and the other, and what's coming is really beautiful and it's going to change your life. And it's going to be the thing. It's just like the thing you're going to love the most in the world. So that pain that gets you there, yes, it hurts, but also if you look at it in, as something to welcome, something that's bringing you towards something beautiful, something that's just pressure bringing forward something that's just going to be the most wonderful thing in your life, then it, it, it reframes it in a way that you don't feel the pain as much. So that's the way I look at like being called out, being called in, whatever. It's the same thing, um, being criticized. So there's that. Um, I don't remember the first part. <laughs> Oh, I was just asking about the 40-40 model. Oh, the 40, 40, yeah, yeah. What everyone wants to hear about. <laughs> so that was inspired by a promise that was given and taken back, the 40 acres and a mule. Um, if you don't know about it, just look it up. It's going to make you really, really mad if you are a Black person, but I'm sure you know about it if you're a Black person. Um, and imagine a world if if those Black folks that were promised 40 acres and a mule got it. Right. Like what would the United States look like if black people still held land and held that kind of wealth that could be passed down generationally? So with Row House, our 4040 model is a $40,000 advance and a 40% royalty share um, for all of our adult trade authors. All of our authors at all of our imprints, um, our imprints are contractually. They have to offer the 40% um, royalty share. That's so important. Um, or the profit share. So it's a promise that we are going to try our best to be equitable. So if you're someone coming in that might not need a $40,000 advance because you have a huge advance, like that's not so exciting to you. And we have a lot of authors that could go anywhere and get multiple six-figure advances, but that 40% on the back end feels real good. And then conversely, we have a lot of authors at $40,000. That advance changes their life. It doubles their family income, literally. It just allows for them to actually market their book or take a little bit of time off and, and do what needs to be done to make a good book. Um, you know, too many people don't understand the village that it takes to make a book, right? And, mm -hmm. and then in other ways with our contract, which, you know, we don't publicize as much because it's like industry stuff that nobody cares about, but we are, our marketing team is incredible. Our publicity team is incredible. Everyone gets the same treatment. We support our authors financially um, with our time, with our energy. We have publicity meetings every single week. Like we, with our authors, we, you know, really are invested in their success. One, because we're giving away a lot of money or we're sharing a lot of money. I don't want to say we're giving it away. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we have to be invested in our books being successful. Like that's some, like, you know, if they lose, we lose. Um, we're not throwing stuff up against the wall and hoping it sticks. We're not playing that big game that the big guys can because we don't have that kind of money. But it, it creates a sense of equity and that everyone has skin in the game in a way that doesn't exist in big publishing houses. And you know, it, it lends itself to the name row house. Um, I grew up in a row house, a two story brick, two bedroom house with a bunch of people. Uh, my parents were great people, not awesome parents. Um, and my neighborhood raised me and I wouldn't be here if not for my neighbors and the love and the food and the presence and the attention that people who in today's world might otherwise be strangers. Like I wouldn't be there if not for them. So I wanted to create that atmosphere inside of my publishing company where everyone's welcome, everyone's taken care of, and we're in it for each other. Like, you know, rising tide, all that 
stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All that good stuff. Yeah. Bex, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, inspired. I love the 4040 model for the way it takes away all these like weird secret door knocks that mm-hmm. are part of uh, traditional publishing. And then, and then just what you just spoke about. So, so inspirationally is just that making this process of writing a book and the business around it into a community. I mean, that's just kind of brilliant. And I just wanted to go back and with that in mind to see if you could take us back to your first book deal and, and what that was like for you. And how do you see that experience now through the lens of what you know about book publishing today, and especially through the lens of your own model and what you're cultivating at Row House? So what I created at Row House is not out of a terrible personal experience that I had in publishing. It's really seeing how the people that I loved and care about were being treated and excluded. My first publishing experience with Hay House for my first book, you have four minutes to change your life, which is super corny, but it's real. Like (laughs) it's a meditation modality that really changed my life for someone who did not have access to healthcare and um, good mental healthcare as a child who struggled. So I got a good advance. Um, I had a lot of friends in the industry. Like I'm good at, and by virtue of the way I look, because I am ambiguously presenting, a lot of times I am that token safe brown person in the room. I got into a lot of spaces where my darker skinned brothers and sisters and siblings could not. So I had a path to success that is not afforded to all in my community. And I was very aware of it. So I was treated very well. I was given a healthy enough advance. I mean, I didn't take home any money from it because you have to pay the editors and all the other people and the marketing people, but it allowed me to make my book successful. I was aware of inequality everywhere, but I naively thought that in a space like publishing where it's, it's art, right? It's a creative field. I thought that it would be a little bit different, a little bit more inclusive, And the more that I saw it wasn't, it just, it pained me again, because the stories, you know, Eldridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice that I read when I was 13 years old, Maya Angelou's, um, I know why the cage bird sings again, that, that 13, 13th summer that was just so magical. And like, in terms of literature for me and like all these, these books by these people, the autobiography of Malcolm X that I read as a young person that gave, gave me such a sense of hope an understanding of who I was. Like I wasn't seeing those books being made anymore. That was so frustrating to me. And it's not to say that black folks, brown folks, disabled, queer folks are not getting book deals at big publishing houses. They are, absolutely. But so much of what they're writing is about oppression and pain. And it's still that consumption of that oppression and pain that um, – is making it onto the, you know, getting these books onto the New York Times bestseller list. And I don't want that anymore either. Like we are not writing books to make white people better people. That's not (laughs) what we're doing here. Yes, there's, we talk about racism. Yes, we talk about inequality, we talk sexism, ableism, all that. But we're really also trying to show the joys of our very human experiences through different lenses. Um, I hope that answered your question. Again, I told you before we start recording, I go on tangents because I just, I wake up when I talk about this and it just goes everywhere. <laughs> I want to get it all in. <laughs> well, 
you're inspired, you know, and, and therefore inspiring. And I, I think it segues really nicely into my next question, which is that you've been lauded for disrupting and reclaiming not just one industry, two industries, wellness and publishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I know publishing is very white. Uh, I, I don't know as much about the wellness industry, but I'm imagining similar. And so I'm curious if you could talk about the intersection and if there's one industry that you have more passion for disrupting or if they're both in, you know, an equal need. <laughs> well, <laughs> So not everyone consumes their information through books, um, which is fine. This is the way that I'm choosing to, you know, take my path. Wellness, though, is something that everybody needs and it should be open to everybody. And the more that I um, ascended in the industry and I you know, started doing more and more and really making relationships, friendships with people that were very powerful in this industry. It's like all the black and brown people fell off. Certainly the disabled people fell off. It's like disability doesn't have any place in wellness, which doesn't make any sense to me. And it was just, it felt very lonely for me. And I knew again, that the things that helped me in life, did it cost a thing? It was community. Community brought wellness for me. Just that, that love and that care and that mutual aid and all those things. And then I saw like a lot of things that I was participating in. You know, I was a meditation guide. That's the modality that that healed me and that helps me every day. Um, and I would go into meditation studios where it's like if I wasn't getting in for free, I would not be paying that. I'm not paying $25, $30 to sit down and be quiet. Like I'm not doing that. And it was just so disappointing though because I know that like so many people need this and they're not getting it. So wellness is incredibly white, incredibly exclusive really, really is catering to this, this affluent, like upper, upper echelons of the financial, um, you know, whatever it is, caste system that we have here in America. And it's disgusting because that's just like, I mean, we all know about what's going on with healthcare and people not having access to like the basic medicines and the care that they need. And it's, it's the same thing. It's like, you're depriving people of life. So if someone doesn't get a book, it's like, all right, we'll get that message to them somehow. But like, in terms of healing and self-love and community, like everybody needs that. And hardly anybody that needs it the most is getting it. Um, that's gross. It definitely is. <laughs> and I, I was thinking while you were talking, Bex, that one part of wellness, of course, is for a writer is writing. I get mm-hmm. very cranky when I don't write. <laughs> And um, I know, you know, I certainly know how difficult it is to write while you're running a company that, you know, caters to authors like you are, uh, because I'm doing the same thing, essentially. And so I'm sure that you're you're just working all the time. And so I was wondering if you're finding time to write and if you're working on a next book. That's hilarious. Um, (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) I'm actually, my 2023 resolution is to read for pleasure Mm. because I'm probably at this point reading a book a day between reading my author's work and editing and all that kind of stuff. So, but I'm reading for pleasure. I can't say that the first book I picked, I picked Fairy Tale by Stephen King. I don't know why I would maybe feel nostalgic about my dad. I'm not a Stephen King fan. I mean, as a human, I am, but not his writing. And it was not pleasurable, but that's, I'm sorry. Read the book, like him if you want. Um, <laughs> I am though, as a matter of fact, working on another book. I was talking to my publisher yesterday, Row House. We don't publish ourselves. So um, I'm working with another publisher, uh, Rise Books. Um, it's my uh, friend, Kristen McGinnis and co-founder of Row House. She inspired me. She called me up and said, hey, why don't you start your own Hey House? 
And I'm co-writing it with Tamala J. Gordon, who is the author of a book that's coming out with Row House, Hood Wellness. And it's so interesting that you say writing is, you know, wellness for you because we're writing a book about creativity and liberation. And it's for the, you know, the starving artist that doesn't have a trust fund. It's for, you know, the folks like us that had to make our way and, and who understand that creative self-expression is wellness. It's so important to the human experience, but too few people have access, the time, the money, the energy to be able to do it. So we're writing a really fun, cheeky, but deep book about our personal experiences and hoping to help people. It's like the artist way for poor people. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Great sales pitch. (laughs) We'll try it. We'll try it. See what happens. But I'm excited about it. That is exciting, Bex. Well, I'm I'm thrilled you and I are going to be sitting on a panel together. If people want to come see both of us in person, we're going to be in San Diego in April for Pub U. And just thank you so much for being a guest on this show. Wait, isn't it in May? Oh, May. Thank you. <laughs> May. You made me nervous. <laughs> it's because I only have to go, you know, down the state and you have to come across the whole country. So, yes. I can't wait. Everyone. It's in May. So, c- come down if you want to. Um, Bex, again, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bex. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's book trend is about another form of diversity in book publishing, and that's the diversity of book publishing models. And since we had the privilege to interview a publisher today, Grant, I wanted to shine some light on a trend that's actually been bothering me. (laughs) Uh, And that's the blurring of the lines that's been happening within the industry around what publishers call themselves. So to my mind, there are four paths to publishing, traditional, hybrid, assisted self-publishing, and self-publishing. But what's been happening lately, more so than ever is that publishers are calling themselves whatever they want. So you have assisted self-publishers who are essentially service providers calling themselves hybrids. You have hybrid publishers calling themselves traditional publishers. And I am upset by this trend because it's one that involves co-opting language and the blurring of the lines is confusing to authors. That's what bothers me. You know, and oftentimes the publisher who's claiming to be what it's not is really just doing so because they're trying to bolster their own reputation. But I think overall, it's just a kind of harmful trend. Yeah, it's it's super complicated uh, because authors have to know a lot about these companies they're, they're engaging with and kind of look under the hood. Um, and because from what I know about publishing, there's no real regulator. You know, no one is going to call a publisher out for saying it's traditional if it's not or saying it's hybrid if it's not. And there are so many more companies in this middle ground space between traditional publishing and self-publishing as, you know, publishing keeps, you know, finding innovative models for one. But I was was curious, Brooke, do you think the reason for this trend comes down to the number of new publishing entities that have sprung up in recent years? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's business, right? So more people are writing, more people want to get published than ever, more service mm-hmm. providers are showing up to support authors to get that done. Fine. You know, when I started She Writes Press 11, what feel like very long years ago now, I was attempting to name this middle ground space for myself. And and the term that I came up with back then was actually third way publishing. <laughs> uh, I liked that, but hybrid stuck because it was a more specific definition and because there were already other players in the space that were identifying with that label. But one reason I like third way publishing is because hypothetically underneath the umbrella of third way, you can just include every single entity that is not traditional and that's not self-publishing. Um, but instead what's happening is there's just like a lot of turf wars going on right now with this co-opting of definitions and other people trashing the definitions or conflating the definitions. Uh, and like I said, the reason it's problematic is because the reason that things are labeled or defined is to provide clarity. (laughs) And I've spent so much time and energy working to codify and define hybrid. And I've just felt frustrated this past year with all these companies saying they're hybrid when they don't meet the criteria of hybrid. It's because it's disheartening. And like I said, because I'm an author advocate, right? And so when you're an author advocate and things are confusing, you feel like you're kind of constantly out there fighting the battle. I bet. And I, I experienced a lot of those blurry lines and heard about them from writers as well. Uh, but Brooke, you know, you're, you're fighting the good fight from what I can <laughs> tell out there. And and I know this is a point of advocacy for you and that last year was a was a hard year for hybrid publishing. Um, you wrote several or maybe a bunch of advocacy pieces in the aftermath of a report that came out that disparaged hybrid publishing. But your point was that the companies being called out as problematic were in fact bad actors in the space, not hybrid publishers at all. Right. And that was tough because it got a lot of attention. And I was sort of sitting there being like, yeah, but you need to look at each model and and people, you know, even industry professionals get confused. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lately, a new frustration of mine is these publishing entities claiming to be traditional, but then they don't have traditional terms at all, like no advances, highish royalties, which in and of itself, high royalties to authors shouldn't seem like a problem, except that when a traditional publisher is covering all your expenses, there's a reason that the royalties are lower to the author, right? And then um, no distribution, which I think if someone doesn't have distribution, they can't really call themselves um, traditional. But the issue here, I think, is that, you know, as you said, there's no regulators and companies call themselves traditional so that they and their authors can brag. (laughs) You know, I mean, authors love to say that they have traditional deals. And it's very important to some authors to call out that they're traditionally published. Uh, But part of the reason for that is, you know, that like the co-opting itself has served to reinforce a hierarchy in which traditional is best. But that's not a belief that I hold. Uh, But, you know, with so many predatory companies entering into the space, it's super hard for authors to make sense of what's what. It really is. It's so complicated. And and as you said, the proliferation of the, those companies is due to demand and, 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 and they're feeding on it and making a lot of money off of authors' egos in some cases. And, and you know, we've said it before, be careful out there. Uh, but Brooke, thanks for raising this awareness over and over again. It's something that, that there will always be people preying on authors in different new inventive ways and i know what a true advocate you are for for hybrids and and i think it is a long game as as you know you you said it it was 11 long years for you but it takes a (laughs) long time for those roots to really get into the ground i think in some ways and the bad actors will rise and fall and the good and respectable publishers out there will stay the course and succeed because of the hard evidence of their good efforts uh, which are in the end 
you know, well-published books, right? Yeah, that's it exactly. And my advice here is that you're publish uh, if you're publishing with any company that's not a legacy publisher, by which I mean like the big five or a publishing house that's been around for a lot of years, my advice is to worry less about what label they might give themselves and instead pay attention to the work that the publisher is doing, which is, as you said, the books, uh, and also the experience its authors have had. Uh, do the work of interviewing those authors, you know, heads up, eyes open, mind just enough cynical about the whole endeavor that you do the work of making sure you know what you're getting. And there's my segue, Grant, because, you know, (laughs) here on Right Minded, listeners know what they're getting. It's a weekly dose of inspiration and also real talk in our book trends, which I love. You know, I, I loved what Beck said today about transparency. It's a value I hold. And I also don't think it's hard to be transparent because I live that value. And it's why I like to talk about this stuff in the trends. And I know you like it too, Grant. So thank you for talking this stuff with me. Uh, And listeners, thank you for listening. Share right-minded with a writerly friend. If you love an episode, share it online, please, because we're still on an upward growth trajectory and we need our listeners' help. So thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 